Alright, good morning guys. Go ahead and wrap up that conversation. Go ahead and uh, if you brought your Bible, pull it out. Pull it out and open up to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Uh, the book of John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. The gospels just recount the, the birth, life, death, uh, and resurrection of Jesus. And John is the fourth one of those. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you hit Acts, you've gone a little too far, Okay. Um, so, uh, open up to John chapter 3. three is the, the, chapter 3 is the big number 3. When you get there, go ahead and put a prayer coaster there, or a connect card, or something there, something to bookmark it, and then turn over to the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. Um, that's where we're going to be uh, starting today, uh, in the book of Ruth. And uh, the book of Ruth is the eighth book of the Old Testament, the eighth book of the Old Testament. Uh, so, uh, the book of Ruth is going to be where we're going to start. And it actually is right after the book of Judges because it's a story from the time of Judges, which is a time of Israel right before they had a king. 400 years, they just had this uh, helter-skelter kind of uh, government system of Judges uh, that came, and Ruth is a story from that period. So it's right after the book of Judges, and that's in the Old Testament. So, well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're joining us, you may not know this, but officially it is Adoption Sunday. Adoption Sunday is a time where around the world, uh, churches lean into this, this unique quality of God, and that God is, first and foremost, an adopter of the human race, okay? I'm not sure who the officials are that decided this, but here, here it is, and, and here we are. And so today we're going to be unpacking um, God's heart towards orphans. That, that's what we're really up to, because um, in these last days, God really wants to minister to orphans, whether that be spiritual and physical orphans, through his church, through, through, through me, through you. And so we're going to be talking about adoption today. I'm, I'm just going to take the aha away from us. Um, when God shows up, we're in a sermon series right now that we've entitled When God Shows Up, which is all about just taking the different threads from Old Testament, New Testament, Age of the Spirit, and saying, these are the character threads of God that we can discover about him, because when he shows up, he shows up in the same way all the time. And today we're going to look at when God shows up, he shows up as an adopter. God shows up to adopt. And he does that primarily through rebirth, is what we're going to find as we skip over to John chapter 3, Okay. But, but that's what we're going to be up to today. We're going to be leaning into God's adoptive nature, okay? Um, it's perhaps one of the most important teachings in the entire scriptures, okay, that God is an adopter. Without it, humanity has no hope. Um, Christy, my wife, and I, we've actually uh, really been uh, influenced a lot by just understanding God is our adopter, and so we've been working towards the past year and a half, I guess, of trying to get to be licensed foster parents. You know, these uh, foster children represent a, a population in our city whose parents no longer are able to care for them, and so they really represent uh, orphans in our city. And uh, I guess it's just almost providential that it finally, we finally got everything uh, locked away and all of our ducks in a row, and then I got in a bicycle accident where <laughs> I was out of commission for a couple months, but then this week is when we were able to take our first placement. 
Uh, we got two little boys this week. Uh, they're just adorable. They are uh, loads of fun, and they're a lot of hard work. This is what people tell you about kids all the time. Um, but it's just providential that I've been able to just lean into this, these, this adoptive quality of life, I guess you could call it, just this week. And so I'm really excited to be able to just talk about it with you all on Adoption Sunday, okay? Um, so yeah, we've gone from a family of four to a family of six, with a one-year-old and a three-year-old, a four-year-old and a six-year-old now. Uh, so it's just like a really stretching, a really stretching experience. Um, and, um, yeah, and so uh, we actually have an organization in here uh, this morning as well uh, called uh, Olive Crest, who they come alongside foster families. They're going to have a table over here after the service, and I'm going to have them up here to talk with you guys a little bit about um, really the, the crisis our city faces and how you can participate as well, okay? So we're going to do that later in the service. All right, so, um, but let's just jump, that's enough introduction, let's just jump right into the book of Ruth, okay? The book of Ruth is one of my favorite books of the Bible, it's many people's favorite books, book of the Bible, Um, and so let's see uh, what we can find out about God's adoptive heart through the book of Ruth, okay? So, uh, let's just uh, set the scene in verse one, we're not going to read every verse um, in this, or we'll be here all day, but let's just set the scene with verse one, okay? It starts like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Hey, uh, do you hear it ringing a little bit here, um, Toph? You hear it ringing, kind of ringing. <clears throat> They went to the country of Moab and and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. All right, so what do we have here? Right, right here we have a family that moves from Bethlehem to Moab. Okay, Bethlehem to Moab. Uh, the little geography note here, there's the Dead Sea between Bethlehem and Moab. The Be- Bethlehem is on the west side of the Dead Sea. Moab is on the east side, okay? The Dead Sea is like, think of it like Lake Washington, okay? So you have a category for it. It's just Lake Washington. It's just a little bit longer, a little bit wider. And we have a category for this kind of move. They're literally going over there for greener pastures, okay? There's famine in the land. This is what happens in the city. People have families, and they want the greener pastures of a yard, okay? So they move to the east side, right? Maybe, yes. I thought for sure you guys would laugh more at that. That's okay. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, but they're looking for, <laughs> they're looking for greener pastures over there, okay? Moving to the east side. How far to the east side? About 50 miles, so essentially to Snoqualmie, okay? There's a family moving to Snoqualmie. You guys get a bridge. They don't. They got to walk around the long way, okay? But they get there, and immediately Naomi, this is really a story about Naomi on the front end here. Naomi is filled with joy. She's two joyful events that happen. Malon gets a wife. Chilion gets a wife. What a joyful thing for a mother to experience. They're growing their family, but then they're just, they just encounter three full rounds of grief. Alimelech dies, 
shortly thereafter, Malin dies, and then even Chilion dies. Now it's just her left with her two daughters-in-law. But Naomi decides to go back to her home. She decides to go back to Judah, back to Bethlehem. And this really represents a Hebrew wordplay that's present in this first chapter. Um, Bethlehem is just Hebrew for uh, a house of food. Bet is house. Lechem is food. So Bethlehem is literally the food house. Food house experiences a famine, they leave. And then it says here that uh, food comes back into the land. So Naomi wants to go back to the house of food because it has Lechem once Again, that's going to be important here. This is what this story is about, coming back to this food house. Was it because they, uh, there was a famine on the east side? Not necessarily. It's just that they no longer had men to work the fields. So they need a different arrangement for things in order to get food. Now, on the way back, we find that these women have a very lengthy, a very emotionally charged conversation. Uh, Naomi feels compelled to release her two daughters-in-law. Back in, in that age, they would have, uh, by coming into this family, they would have actually been under her authority, even if their families died. And Naomi feels compelled. She says, hey, you guys don't have to make this trip back with me. Okay, go, you can go back home. If, if you come to Israel, there's actually no hope of a family for you, she says. There's no hope of procreation again for you. To go back to Israel is this life of destitution, Naomi tells both of these women. And the conversation ends like this. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her sister, she said, no more. It's startling. Orpah decides to leave. She's like, okay, good. I'm going to go back to my old family, probably to go see if I might have a life there. But Ruth's response is the complete opposite. And the more you examine this response, the more amazing it becomes. It's just an incredible, we could spend our whole morning just right here in these verses. It's an amazing response. She agrees to leave her family in Moab behind. She gives up her old family to be part of a people that she does not know speaking a language that she's only probably started to speak in the past couple of years. She's not only a widow now, but she's going to commit to being an alien, a foreigner, no previous family. It's appropriate to really understand Ruth as an orphan herself, as an orphan. She's an orphan without a home, without protection, without provision in her life. She's in a very highly, highly vulnerable state, Ruth is. She's taking all of the boxes of vulnerability as you read through her story. It's, it's remarkable. She decides to stick it out with Naomi, and here's what's key. Give the family of God a shot. She's going to give the family of God a shot. And what we're going to see over the entire book of Ruth is that, in many ways, Ruth is very representative of the vulnerable in all of society, of, of the alien, the orphaned, 
Not, not just physically what she is, but what we're going to see is it's going to extrapolate to just the spiritually vulnerable. Those who have fallen into discontentment, disenchantment with the way things are in the world, who have left perhaps the hurt of their old family, their old friendships, and as a result, they're disconnected, they're isolated, they're vulnerable, very vulnerable. She's representative of those who have been burned um, both by old traditions but also new ideas and have been disenchanted with them and are disconnected. These are the people who have the hope that there might be something greater out there. This is who Ruth is going to come to represent. The hope that there might be something greater out there. Let me give the family of God a shot. I look around the room, and I know there's many of you who this is your story. There's many of you who are in the beginning of this story. There's many of you who have come through this story here in Seattle. You're at different stages, but eventually you got to the point where you're like, I'm going to give the family of God a shot. Some of you just started it. Some of you can remember when you started it. But there's a disenchantment with the world that leads to disconnectedness with the world. <clears throat> I'm alone. Maybe this Jesus has all the answers I need. Maybe this Jesus could help me. I'm going to go give the community of God a shot. That's what people come into churches asking. So these are spiritual orphans. These are spiritual Ruths, even among us in our city. I hope to broaden this category a little bit for you. Ruth is really representative of all who get to the end of their rope, and they decided to give God a chance again. Um, each year we do our Alpha Course. Our Alpha Course, it, it's really that simple. We, we do the Alpha Course in the hopes that we might find Ruths in the city, in the hopes that people who are, might be willing to give God a shot might be able to brush into considering Him. It's, it's, it's why uh, the, the Consider Project is a thing. It's not church, right? But it's really there to see if there might be some Ruths in the city who are disenchanted and lonely and need connection and meaning and purpose into life. That's what we're doing. And the question that we're left with at this point in the book of Ruth is, how is it going to go? How is it going to work out? What is God going to do with this woman, this vulnerable woman, taking a chance on God, taking a chance in a new people, taking a chance with a new family? That's what the question we're left with here. She's, given, she's rolling the dice on this food house. How, does, how is she recepted? Chapter 2, verse 1. They get back, and now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of, of Elimelech, one of their relatives, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean amongst the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, that's Naomi, said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who is in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather together among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued early from morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, 
Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. This is how Ruth is welcomed into the family of God by Boaz. And I'm going to spoil it a bit for you. Boaz is going to come to represent God. He's going to come to represent God's heart towards outsiders, towards the vulnerable, towards the weak, towards the orphaned. Now, now yes, Boaz is, is a man. He was not God. But the writer of Ruth is going to show us that Boaz's heart is going to far outstrip everything that the Israelite law calls him to. Okay? It's going to be very profound. Back in, in, in Leviticus chapter 25, we actually kind of have this understanding of, a, um, of God really just in providing his law, revolutionizes the entire economic social order of this new nation that he's creating. In this new nation, people are not allowed to, to pick up any grain. These reapers, when they reap the grain and they fumble it and it falls on the ground, which it will inevitably do, they're not allowed to pick it up. They're not allowed to, to take the grain off the corners of their field. Those are to be left for the outsiders, for the foreigners, for the less fortunate. We have a social justice initiative tied into Israel in this way. And, and what we're going to find is that Boaz is going to go even further than that. He's going to give Ruth water. He says, hey, you know what? You're going to get tired in doing this. Come take some of our water. We're, later we see that he gives her lunch, gives her food and alcohol at lunch. That's another step beyond it. And then he's going to give her even special gifts to take home to her mother-in-law. Boaz, he's not just obeying the law. His heart for God is making him outstrip the letter of the law, and he's going to embody the spirit of the law. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. This tells us something really, really interesting, which is from the very get-go, God's people were always supposed to imitate him always supposed to look like him. The law was given, but, but God's biggest hope is that they would adopt his heart and even outpace what the law was about. Now, so I think we, we kind of intuit this um, uh, for Christians after Jesus. You know, we're called Christians, which are little Christ, right? Little Christ. So we're like, okay, we're supposed to imitate Christ. But even before, the, the ideal Israelite was someone who is imitating God in his heart. Jesus shows up and says, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. There's this imitation of God that, that isn't just a New Testament thing. It's how the people of God, God's vision for them the entire time. It's because humans were first created in the image of God, designed to rule over the world. That's Genesis 1. And then Genesis 3, we see humanity rebel. And, and so no longer are they rulers. No longer are they prince and princesses or Dukes and duchesses, if you're English, prefer that analogy, you know? We, we love the English uh, royalty. I should probably say that. Okay, but anyways, no longer are they, they're deposed royalty, no longer functioning, and everything God is going to do with humanity after that, after Genesis 3, is really to get them functioning as his image in the world again. <clears throat> and Boaz is a, pot of, a positive example of that. So Ruth is really our disillusioned and, or, and orphaned searcher. And Boaz is God. And here we see that Ruth draws near to Boaz's servants to glean. Okay? So this is what Ruths do. 
This is what Ruths do. They draw near to the people of God to experience what it's all about. And hopefully, they get a blessing. Hopefully, they get a blessing in that. That's what people who are disenchanted with the world, they come into the church of God and they say, is there blessing here? They come near the house of food. They come into Bethlehem. Is there food here to experience it? I haven't been satisfied like that song that we just sang at the front. I'm not finding satisfied. I'm not satisfied outside in the world. Maybe there's real true food here. Maybe there's true meaning, true purpose, true connection, true warmth, because out there it's cold and meaningless. Is there food here for them? Like I said, we have these two little boys now, and they're just the most adorable little things you'll ever see. Um, and they show up in, into our house, and all they started doing was eating. They eat, and they eat, and they eat. And, and, the, and we, were, we remembered in our training that we took a really long time ago because we really dragged our feet through the process. We remembered in our training, we said, oh yeah, that, they told us this was going to happen because they weren't in a house of food. They are in a, a place where there was food scarcity. And so they show up into a house of food, and they just eat, and they eat, and they eat, and they eat. And the downside is, is that they poop and they poop and they poop. <laughs> they poop. It's, like, it's like a lot of work doing that on my back end. <laughs> but this, in a sense, is what spiritual orphans do when they come into community. They come in and, and all of a sudden there's, there, it's apparent that there's connection and there's warmth and there's meaning and there's purpose in the people of God. And the question we have is, are we letting them raid the pantry? You see that? Are we letting them raid the pantry? Or are they finding inside the house of God the same thing that's outside the house of God? Ruth shows up and Boaz says, there's plenty here for everyone. At cost to me, Boaz says, you can flourish, but I, I'll still flourish just fine. Seattle is starving. Starving, not, not just physical, but spiritual orphans. They long for connection get none. They long for love and commitment, but get abandonment. They long for meaning and purpose, yet are still empty. But God has given us a full pantry in regards to all these things. And so when people come in, we open the doors wide. This is part of what it means to be the family of God. Ruth doesn't necessarily belong full, fully in this family of God. You see that? She comes with nothing. She's made no real commitments past to, past to Naomi, but the doors are flung open for her. That's beautiful. That's God's heart. It's amazing. All right, so what, what happens next? Ruth goes home and she tells her mother-in-law what's happened there. Skip down to verse 17. So she, that's Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. It's a measurement of weight. She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she, what she had gleaned. She also brought it out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with who I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all of my harvest. 
And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So this pantry raiding continues for many weeks. It keeps on going on. The rest of the harvest season. And we find out a very crucial piece of information about Boaz, that he is this redeemer figure. And this is in the old Israel, the, the Torah, the old Israelite law there. The a redeemer figure was something that was really allotted for in Israelite law that when people would go through hardship, say they went through famine, death, war, people eventually go through hardship, the redeemer's job was, would be a relative who would come back alongside this person who had experienced hardship and front the cash necessary to return them to the status quo, to return them back to their economic station in life that they were at before the hardship took place. Okay, so this is much more than just like a handout to give them some food so that they could make it. This is a complete restoration of somebody's economic station in life. Okay, and so for, for Naomi and Ruth, this meant that their husbands died. So what they lose? They lost the opportunity to propagate their hereditary line. If they were to die, their land would go somewhere else. They'd lose their entire estate. And so a redeemer to step into their life meant for, to return them back to the economic station that they had before these three men died in their lives. You see, you see how robust this, this Israelite social code is? It's, it's remarkable. We won't see anything codified like it for, for 1,000, 1,500 years after it's codified. It's absolutely amazing, you know? Sometimes people will point to the Code of Hammurabi, but you read the Code of Hammurabi and you're like, that's just peanuts compared to what this thing's calling people to. It's just remarkable. That's just on a side note, but anyways. God is a God that has a huge heart for the vulnerable, is, is what we're saying here. So much so that nothing in, in culture and in society really imitated it. It's so unique. He's so unique. Okay. All right, I, I, got, I lost myself here. So Ruth went to Boaz's field six days a week, a couple of weeks. Naomi becomes more and more convinced that this guy has the heart of God. He's following the law. And so he tells her at some point, this is recounted in all of chapter three, I'm gonna give you the Spark Notes version. She, she tells her, you're gonna go into his, his barn, you're gonna lie down, and you're gonna ask him to be the full redeemer. You're gonna say, you know what, are we gonna do this or what? Okay, it's a very bold move. It's a very awkward section of scripture to read, actually. Um, we're just going to pick it up in verse 8, 3, 3, 8, when he wakes up. At the middle of the night, the man was startled and turned over. His feet were cold, you know? Someone ever take your covers off your feet? It's terrible, terrible experience. He's startled. His feet was cold. His feet were cold. <clears throat> And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed in the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen. For, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. This is very instructive for the Ruths in the room, okay? You, you, you know who you are. Eventually, after experiencing the blessings of God, 
recognizing your dependent nature on him for all the good things, eventually it gets to this point where it's like, are we going to do this or not? You see that there? Are are we going to enter into full relationship with one another or not? And and I've had the opportunity to see it time and time again where, where, where people, where Ruth's among us, they get there and they say, let's do it. Let's go. Let's go all in. And what's God's disposition to that ask? He's excited. He's excited. Look at Boaz. He's like, absolutely, I'll do that for you, Ruth. But in order to do it, he has to wheel and deal a little bit. And it becomes very clear that this arrangement is going to cost Boaz something, something very, very, very valuable. So much so that he, we actually find this out by Boaz goes into, into town and he says, there's another redeemer who actually, it's his job to redeem you guys more than mine. So I have to go talk to him. That guy, it becomes very evident in the conversation, that guy's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is going to cost a lot. This is going to endanger a lot of my estate. I don't want to do this. And Boaz jumps at the opportunity. He says, I'm all in on it. I'll do it then. I'll do it. It's remarkable, the fact that Boaz would decide to sacrifice his own estate. Ruth's child is likely going to be the one who inherits everything Boaz has. But he's willing, and he makes a deal to act as a redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, to adopt them, to bring them into his family as if, it's, as if they're his own. They're going to experience all the rights of his family. Their children are going to experience all of the blessings that he's worked his whole life to create. This is the idea of this kinsman redeemer that pops up and presents itself for Ruth and Naomi. And what's instructive is we have this kinsman redeemer outlined in the law of Israel. This is the only time, the only example in all of scripture that we have of it. But the the idea of it and the example of it crops up up about 18 other times. Well, exactly 18 other times. And you know how many other humans it's about? Zero. It's always used to refer to God. God's dealings with vulnerable people to adopt them into his family. This is the central thrust of the kinsman redeemer, is to buy the vulnerable and make them full heirs in the family of God, which in the Old Testament is through Israel. When God shows up, then he adopts people. He adopts people. What comes with that? A home, protection, food, a lap to sit on, a comforter in the middle of the night, again and again and again is what I found. He's always there. I get nothing less than the presence of a father and the benefits of heirs. What does Ruth bring? Nothing. Nothing. She brings nothing into the arrangement whatsoever. Ruth only represents a liability to Boaz. Nothing else. Not a revenue stream. Nothing. Boaz doesn't need Ruth. In fact, taking her on is a costly business move. You see, kingdom redemption captures God's purchase of orphans. What was the ultimate price that he paid? Redemption, there's this, you can't get away from a a cash transaction taking place with this notion of redemption. It's it's, it's cash language. It's a transaction. What's the price that God pays for all orphans everywhere, the spiritually orphaned? Jesus' death on the cross. 
At several points in Jesus' ministry, that's why, he's came, that's why he says he came. He says, hey, I'm, I'm just a purchase price. He says it over and over again. I'm just a purchase price for people who are going to put their faith in me so that all of us can be part of the family of God and experience the presence of God in real, real, real ways. When we lose the, when we lose the purchase price of Jesus, though, you know, when we say, you know, that God doesn't have to satisfy his wrath for sin, ooh, that's hard to talk about. That's hard for people in our city to stomach. But do you see how when we lose that, we lose this sacrificial God? We lose this God that looks at all of the vulnerable, all of the orphans, all of humanity and says, you know what, you're worth it. You bring nothing into this arrangement and it's gonna cost me everything. That's Boaz and Ruth. What a strange God that he would pour out blessings, connection, warmth, love, commitment on people until they decide to go all in. And then he says, I've given my entire life for you. Everything you've experienced up to this point is just a little taste of the sacrifice that I've already poured out. How about that, God? Now, we need to transition to the New Testament, our New Testament, on how we see God show up in the person of Jesus. And I have two transitions for you guys, and I love them both, so you're going to get both, okay? Um, the first one goes like this. Ruth is the only, um, o- the only book in the Bible that ends with a genealogy, which is kind of fun. Usually genealogies set up what's going to happen, and Ruth, it ends with it. Meaning the whole book of Ruth is really about what her and Boaz propagated. What we find out is that the little orphan Ruth coming into the family of God marries Boaz. She's the great-grandmother of King David. King David, okay? And, and, and that's where we're going to go here. And first, that's why it's right before it bridges Judges and Samuel because First Samuel is really all about um, inaugurating the kingship of Israel. Ruth is the hinge. It all hinges on Ruth and Boaz. This little Moabite woman coming back to Israel is going to be the great-grandmother of King David. You don't get King David without Ruth, which is remarkable. And then even when we go steps further, we see that in the gene- genealogy of Christ, that Ruth is mentioned because as the genealogy of Christ comes out of David. So we have Boaz and Ruth mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. You don't get Christ without Ruth. There's this providential, uh, 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 sovereign thing that God has done through this little story of this orphan who she is now the queen of many. <laughs> it's, it's remarkable, okay? That's the first tra- Second transition goes like this. If I would have told you at the beginning of the sermon that I was going to tell you a story about a redeemer from Bethlehem who fulfilled the law, even exceeded the law through his acts of mercy and his abundant provision for outsiders before entering into a covenant with a bride from the, from a, from the nations, you would have said, oh, he's going to talk about Jesus. But no, it's Boaz. That's Boaz. All right? All right, okay, cool. Let's move to Jesus then, because what Jesus does is he makes the particulars of what this adoption process look like, uh, what what this adoption process is, very clear, okay? So turn over wherever you had that bookmark to John chapter 3. Turn over to mine. John chapter 3, okay? John chapter 3. Well, we're going to pick this up in a minute. Um, Maybe third transition. Sorry, guys. I found this, this this week... I found it this this week when I was looking at the scriptures, there's this reality that jumps off the page and screamed at me about Jesus' birth. 
that I had never considered before this week, and perhaps it's just Christy and I stay as kind of uh, foster parents right now. But do you know what's remarkable about Jesus? Jesus was adopted. You ever consider this? Jesus was adopted. The Bible makes it very clear that this cat named Joseph, he didn't contribute much to that baby-making process. He contributed very zero. He did nothing. (laughs) Jesus shows up. Joseph adopts Jesus. We preached a sermon on social justice a couple months ago, and what we found in that sermon, what we said in that sermon, is that God just doesn't have a heart for the vulnerable. There's not just a special place in his heart where he feels compassion for the orphaned, the lost, the taken advantage of. No, God identifies with the lowest of society. He says, you see that person? You see this orphan? I am that. So much so that when he shows up as a poor baby in need of adoption, it shouldn't surprise us. It's like, yep, God, he identified with the lowest of society throughout the, into all the pages of the Old Testament. Of course, when he'd show up, he'd look just like that. He shows up in need of adoption. It's really remarkable, and so much, I mean, Joseph is a great adoptive dad. Angel shows up to Joseph and said, hey, someone's trying to kill your son. You gotta flee as a refugee to Egypt. Great job, adoptive dad. Get him out of there. It's just, it's just a really cool part of scripture that I hadn't considered before this week. It's, it's remarkable. God shows up in need of adoption, even. We should, we, we should expect it. Jesus says, whenever you do for the least of these, whatever you do, whenever you serve the most vulnerable of, of, of society, it's as if you're doing it for me. It's because Jesus identifies with the lowest. Okay. All right, so let's figure out how this adoption, pro- this adoption process works. John chapter 3, three of the first couple of verses here. This is the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee in, uh, in Jesus's, during the time of Jesus' ministry. Um, uh, he, he's named Nicodemus. He's kind of this, he's really an enigmatic character. Uh, we don't really know where his story went, but it seems that we have a private conversation here between him and Jesus, and it seems that John would only figure out about this private conversation if Nicodemus perhaps eventually became a Christian. Um, and so, can't say it really conclusively, but I'm hopeful to see Nicodemus in the new kingdom. He comes in, he really represents a Ruth, okay? All right, now there was a man of the Pharisees, 3 verse 1, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, stop there. Why is this cat coming to Jesus at night? John lets us know that. It's because he doesn't want people to know that he's coming. That's what most commentators say. Like, he's coming at night because he doesn't want the rest of the Pharisees to know that he's considering Jesus. These Pharisees represent a population of Jewish culture that, that when Jesus comes up, they hate him. And so here we have a possibly defecting Pharisee coming in the middle of the night to talk to Jesus to figure out what he's all about, okay? That's what Nicodemus is up to. He's a Ruth. He's a little bit dissatisfied. He's discontented, perhaps, with the way things are going, And in his search for God's activity, he's decided to consider and investigate Jesus. He's looking for the kingdom of God. And Jesus replies like this, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which, is born of, that, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that when I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Okay. And this is a confusing passage. Okay. Um, it was confusing for Nicodemus. Uh, and then Jesus kind of scolds him and says, this shouldn't be confusing for you, bro. You know the Old Testament scriptures. Um, we're already, I mean, we could take a couple Sundays to unpack this. So you guys are going to get the Cliff Notes version, okay? Uh, you skeptics are bummed. Uh, the rest of you are like, yes, the Cliff Notes version. That's okay. Hey, you can laugh at that if, if you're like, yes, Cliff Notes. Okay. Um, so this is kind of the Cliff Notes version. Uh, Jesus says, um, well, Nicodemus, you can experience the result of the kingdom of God a little by watching me as a Ruth, a little by flirting with my followers and experiencing my miraculous blessings from the fringes. You can do that, but if you want the full thing, if you want the full kingdom of God in your life, you have to be born again. Nicodemus responds, how am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's room? Not room, womb. <laughs> womb. That's a, it's a very graphic picture, right? Like, so Jesus replies, bro, I'm obviously not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about being born again from above or from God. Jesus is saying that if you want to see the full kingdom of God, God has to adopt you, rebirth you. See that? This is how people become children of God. Something that John talked about back in chapter one where he says, for those... <clears throat> But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, this is 1 verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. But of God. So how does this birthing process work? Okay, how does this birthing process work? Okay, uh, here's, here's the, the cliff notes. First, there's a recognition of our hopeless orphaned state on uh, that, that the first thing we have to notice is that, that for Jesus, faith in him isn't just an add-on. There's a recognition of a hopeless orphan state that we have that we need a complete renewal for. That is very crucial for this birthing process, okay? It's not just something added on. It's something where everything changes, okay? Um, second, there's a dependency on God. Who here birth themselves physically? Who, who here... No one. No one. Jesus makes it clear that we are dependent upon God for adoption and birth. This is not something that we can affect ourselves, which means this. This is unsettling. This is very unsettling. Have you ever sat in the room with someone who's considering Jesus, who gets to the point where they say, hey, okay, I want to be all in on God. I want to be all in on God. How do I do it? I've had the opportunity to do that a handful of times. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing. And you just look back at him and you say, you just have to ask and wait. Ask and wait. It's a very unsettling point in, in, uh, in somebody's coming to Jesus. It's unsettling. We'll come back to this in a minute. This leads us to the third point. This born again nature thing is of water and spirit. Water and spirit. What does this mean, Okay. Well, in Old Testament passages, such as Ezekiel chapter 36, what we see is God's water and his spirit 
work together as agents of renewal in people. Water tends to represent a cleansing that people go through, and spirit tends to represent this complete renewal. So there's a cleansing and a renewal. Both a cleansing of sin is how, we, is how, is how the New Testament talks about that, and then a renewal, a gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just a blank slate. It's, it's the, the, the slate is lengthened and then transformed to go do incredible things, okay? It's both of these. So combining these three points means this, okay? This notion of rebirth occurs at the intersection of an orphan admitting their need and dependence upon God for his redemption, okay? Orphan admitting their need, depending on God for redemption. Picture Ruth lying at Boaz's feet. And then God's birthing activity on the other side, which includes making a way. Picture Boaz wheeling and dealing in the marketplace. So there's both of these that come together that we see in the story of Boaz. We have a gospel in the story of Boaz that they come together, that Jesus is talking about here in water and spirit. They come together here in order, to, in order for God to adopt someone and completely renew and rebirth them, okay? And I'll just answer this question because I know that it's out there. Water birth, uh, is water birth baptism? That's what people typically ask. And the, the answer is no and yes, okay? It's, it's no and yes. Uh, first, no, it can't be because God is the one who does the birthing, not us, And so to say that someone's entrance into the kingdom of God is dependent on something that they do with their body actually brings us outside of a birth metaphor. So it doesn't really help us. But it is about baptism in this way. Um, Baptism is is not, so there's nothing that necessarily happens there. Here at Sedaris, we like to say that baptism is a dramatization of something that's already taken place in somebody's life. So when people are dunked under the water, what they do is they are symbolizing and, and dramatizing this, this water of washing. And when they are raised back up, they are symbolizing this renewal, this new life that they are, are called into. So, so is it about baptism? No, but yes, and that baptism dramatizes this water and spirit baptism that's already taken place in somebody's life. Okay, cool. Okay, now, what does this mean for the Ruth in our midst or in our friends, in our friend group? Okay, like I said, that when they bump into this portion of the gospel, it can be very unsettling. You know, they glean from the people of God for a while. They've come to understand the gospel. They've come to understand that they've rebelled against God. The systems of the world, they cannot satisfy them. That they need God to be their adoptive father. They're ready. They're prepared to fully enter the family of God. Then there's this unsettling moment. Well, I want it, but when is it going to happen? The only way forward is for God to birth them. There's nothing they can do about it. They can only uncover the feet of God and wait Think about Ruth's experience. Uncovers his feet, waits. One hour, two hours. How long was it? Three hours? She surely could not sleep. But he definitely will wake up. And so for those of you, Ruth, that are among us, you ask God, God, would you adopt me? God, would you rebirth me? And then you wait He's not sleeping per se, but his feet will get cold and he eventually will turn and he will respond and, he'll, and he will respond just as Boaz did. Absolutely. And then he'll say, I've already wheeled and dealed in order for this to happen. Welcome to the family, my child. Okay? 
It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, and what does this mean for the child of God then, for those who actually are already part of the family of God? Well, when we understand how scrappy God is for us as orphans, we really start to be scrappy for other orphans. We really start to roll up our sleeves and, and really understand the great blessings that we've received as a community, that our pantries are full. And so we go out to both find Ruth's, invite Ruth's, and then when they come, open our storehouses for the Ruth's that they might encounter the community of God more than just intellectually. The Christian faith is very reasonable, but it's not just reasonable. The Christian faith is very experiential and beautifully experiential. And they get to experience that in the context of the family of God. Just like Boaz gave Ruth water, gave her, gave her lunch, gave her grain, gave her wine. Take a Ruth out for a beer. Come on, it's good. All right, and then, then thirdly, we care for real orphans. We care for real orphans in our city. And so at this point, I'm actually going to invite Amy up to the stage. Amy. Um, Amy is actually from the organization that helps Christy and I uh, through foster care. Um, and uh, we decided to have her up here to tell us a little bit about how we can actually help in this crisis, really, that our city faces in terms of orphans. So. Yeah, well, good morning. My name's Amy. Um, my coworker, Leave and I are here this morning. Super excited to be with you, so thanks for having us. Um, we work at Olive Crest. Um, at Olive Crest, we have three offices in Washington, which make us the biggest private foster care agency in the state, so we're state licensed. Um, we have right now about 450 licensed families between all three offices. Um, I work in the Bellevue office, where they are licensed, and of those 450 families, we have about 300 in children placed in out-of-home care. Um, we have a crisis in our foster care system for sure. There's about 8,500 children placed in out-of-home care in the state. But to bring that a little closer to home, there's about 1,600 kids just in King County alone who are in the foster care system. So chances are if you work in a hospital or a school or anywhere in your community, you're probably encountering kids in the foster care system and just don't know it. But there are a lot of kids placed. And then for every kid that's placed, we've got about 10 more that are waiting for a home. So we have a deficit, estimate deficit, in King County of about four to 500 foster families. So we're looking for more people to step up and to say, yes, we want to fill in the gap and step into that spot. Um, at Olive Crest, we believe for reconciliation. So it's really the goal that kids that come into care be able to go back to their families. Um, that's really a beautiful thing, family preservation. I think that's how God designed family, and sometimes kids come into care just because their parents can't care for them at the time, but we hope for restoration and healing and reconciliation for biological parents, and so that's always the goal. Um, and so we need people to stand in the gap and be safe homes for a while. Um, and sometimes we need safe homes for forever, um, but foster care isn't just about becoming a foster parent, too. We're really um, excited to um, be able to tell people that there's a lot of ways that you can get involved in foster care, and I think foster care is really for everybody. So not everyone needs to step up and be a foster parent. That would be too many, which that would be a nice problem to have, but um, it's not for everybody. But certainly um, there's something that everyone can do. There's a way that everybody can engage in foster care and in um, helping families and um, lucky for you guys, you have someone that you actually know that's doing foster care, so this is really simple. Um, for their family to continue to do what they're doing, they need support. Um, being a parent is hard, um, as it is, but to parent kids that come from traumatic places and that are dealing with a lot of things, um, 
that's not an easy thing to do. And so a great way that you guys can get involved here if you don't feel called to specifically become a licensed foster parent is you can wrap around and care um, for Ryan and his wife. And you guys can do things like provide babysitting and provide groceries and car maintenance or yard care or whatever they might need. Um, go clean their house, take them a meal. Um, that can look like a lot of different things. And then we also have a program at Olive Crest called Safe Families, and that's where people don't necessarily go through the whole licensing process, but a little bit of the process. And then um, they're stepping up and saying, I will be a safe family for another family that's maybe in crisis. So maybe there's like a single mom and she has to have surgery and she doesn't have any family here. A lot of times it's refugees and our safe families will step in to the gap to care for children and families in a time of crisis. Maybe um, there's a domestic violence issue and there's a period of time where people can't care for their kids properly. And so our safe families are kind of, kind of a tear down in terms of the process of licensing, of um, standing in that gap for families and other people. But in the state of Washington, um, well, actually nationwide, it's estimated that about 50% of kids that age out of the foster care system, meaning they turn 18 without ever having found a permanent home or an adoptive family, about 50% of those kids go on to become homeless. So when we're addressing our foster care issue and our orphan issue, we're really actually helping address a homelessness issue and drug issues and helping to head off mental health crises before they become um, irreparable and before people end up taking to the streets. So we're really addressing a lot of issues and a lot of marginalized people groups when we care for kids and foster care. Well, thanks for sharing. I know that like there's like 150 people at our church, so they all can't, they all shouldn't help me. That'd be really selfish on my part. Good. Yeah, so <laughs> how, how do you guys link up uh, people who want to uh, assist other families, and what does that look like? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, we have, like he mentioned, we have a table over here, and we have some different ways that you can help. Um, there are community groups. I mean, what we would love to see is that every foster family has a church or community that can wrap around them and can really help them, but we do have some foster families that don't have that. So if you're interested in just connecting with Olive Crest in a way that you say, gosh, my community group could help another foster family in need or could go, um, you know, clean up a yard or clean a house or um, help in that regard, we can definitely um, get you information and kind of mobilize your own small group if you want to help in that way. Um, we have a lot of different volunteer opportunities. Um, we are only 80% publicly funded, so we are a nonprofit. So we have to fundraise about 20 to 30% every year. And so we have different fundraisers, um, and there's ways for you to get involved. We're always looking for monthly supporters too. So we have all sorts of different things from um, helping directly in our offices and direct care and helping with um, families who are fostering and then always looking for support and fundraising and different volunteer opportunities and stuff like that. But I think on a really practical level, um, having a group of people that can wrap around one foster family um, is a really beautiful way to help and support them so that they can keep doing that work. Because a lot of families we find end up tapping out and the reason they tap out of foster care after not very long is because they're just burnt out and they didn't have a community around them to hold them up, to pray for them, um, to provide really practical needs for them. And so we find that when families have this communities wrapping around them, they can do it for the long haul and they can provide care for kids longer. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah, I know like for our family, we, we've just been fostering for like four days now. But <laughs> four days. Congratulations, Thank that's you. a big deal. <laughs> There's been a lot. We've accomplished a ton in four days. But we uh, just having, on Thursday, we had to go get groceries. And we're like, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. 
And so we had 15 people from our community group. We just sent out a blast email. Who can pick up our groceries and we can Venmo you back? And it, was, it just meant the world to us, you know? And so um, serving in that capacity is really good. And then I think the families, this is part of the training. You might have to correct me because mine was so long ago. They, they tell you, you need uh, like four or five different people, or maybe it's eight or nine. Or to, 10 or 12. Or 10 or 12. Yeah, maybe it's 10 or 12. Yeah, that, that seems better. Uh, like functioning in specific roles to support you. Um, and I'm sure that, uh, so families are kind of looking for those roles and communities that would come alongside and say how we could, we could fill those yeah, as well. Yeah, for sure. We have a really great graphic that I don't have here, but the family is in the middle of the graphic, and then there's a wheel around the family, yeah, and that, there's like that, 10 or 12 people, like think a clock, and each station represents like someone that will get groceries, someone that will pray with you, someone that will do emergency babysitting, someone that will do respite for a family. And if you get licensed to be a foster parent, it does not mean that you have to take a long-term placement or that you even have to be an adoptive family. We have some families that just get licensed so that they can do respite care. Mm-hmm. So respite care is when you just take other people's kiddos in foster care for the weekend, give them a break, let them go on a date night, let them go on a little vacation, and you would be a licensed home. So you can take kids from foster parents who are already caring for them, and you can just have them for a week or a weekend. And that's also a really beautiful way um, to get connected and to help and support. But yeah, it takes a village for sure. I think that phrase was coined by someone doing foster care. It takes a village. Yeah, that's great. Well, great. Well, how about we pray for, I want to pray for you. And uh, as Dave comes up here to lead us in communion, so I'll take that and just give this for him. But I want to pray for for you and and as you work and really just everything that Olive Crest is doing. They're they're just so, so supportive and, and they're always there for us. So, I mean, it's just great to have, it's great to have an organization that kind of will, also contend between you and this and the the governmental systems right. just because it's a lot of work yeah. and so <laughs> cool so yeah. let's pray for you and all of us uh father uh, right now we are we're just humbled by your um by your heart for um for the the vulnerable for the oppressed for for orphans for those in, in need of safe and loving places, God. Um, God, you, uh, you are that safe and loving place, and you call your family to provide those safe and loving places for the vulnerable of society. And I just, uh, right now, we just, I want to praise you and thank you for the work that you've done in, in Amy's life to get her to go all in and be a part of this olive crest, God, that, w- that takes seriously. Hey, yeah, we want to do that. We want to, to execute God's heart in the world in real ways, God. And we, we know that you hope to do it through your church. So I ask that you would continue to empower um, Amy and the staff like her at Olive Crest. Would you continue to, to use them to encourage foster families so that the, the, the most vulnerable in society might be loved and might be safe? Uh, we thank you as our safe and loving Father. Amen. Amen.